I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is John Zimmer, co-founder of Lyft. Lyft is a transportation network company with a peer-to-peer mobile app that enables passengers to request rides with their smartphones. Prior to starting Lyft, John co-founded Zimride in 2007, a carpooling rideshare company available predominantly in college communities. Zimride was sold to Enterprise Rent-A-Car in 2013. Lyft is available across the United States and through partnerships with ride-sharing companies throughout Asia. John is originally from Greenwich, Connecticut, and his mom wears a necklace with the Lyft logo. Uh, I, I read that somewhere. Is that really true? I think sometimes. I tell her it embarrasses me. It was the, she wears it with a pink mustache, uh-huh. which, which has changed. Uh-huh. Um, I, I heard she, she still wears it. I hear she has a pair of earrings, too. This is true. I don't know where... I don't know. You have good sources. Uh, yeah. Thank you. So in order to understand the Lyft story, we have to go back really to what Lyft grew out of, which was Zimride. Zimride is a carpooling company predominantly on college campuses for long-distance driving. Can you tell me a little right. bit more about that? Sure. So Zimride was for long-distance carpooling. Think of like an old college bulletin board where people used to post, I'm going from Ithaca to New York. And we brought that online. You uh, have a partner, Logan Green, and you both came to this idea from two different sources, really. Can you describe where Logan came to this idea from? Yeah, sure. So Logan grew up in L.A., so the center of traffic. He hated being stuck in traffic. And uh, he got really into both technology and transportation. He went to UC Santa Barbara, and he wanted to make an experiment out of himself, mm-hmm. which was not bringing a car to school and seeing how he could get around. Mm-hmm. And so he rode the bus. He used things like Craigslist to find carpool or rideshare partners. Then while he was in school, he took a trip to Zimbabwe. And he saw people, which is true in many developing countries, sharing rides out of necessity. And they have lots of different names for it uh, in Zimbabwe, I believe they call it uh, combi system. And it's interesting. When I was researching Zimride, I was like, oh, how generous of Logan Green to allow the company to be named after your last name. But in <laughs> fact, Zimride is named after Zimbabwe. Correct. Yeah, he named it before I knew him. How did you and Logan meet? We have a mutual friend, uh, also named John. I was on Facebook one night and saw that Logan had posted on John's uh, Facebook page that he was starting a website called Zimride. And so I reached out to John, we call John Wancho, and uh, called Wancho. I said, how well do you know Logan? Do you think you know you could connect us? Now, you at the time also had uh, transportation innovation in your mind. Where did that come from for you? I took a city planning class my senior year uh, when I was at Cornell Hotel School and had this amazing professor. Uh, and he his first... Lecture was the history of the world in 30 minutes. The class is called Rob Young, and he he now teaches in Texas. Uh, But the class is called Green Cities. And he walks through history, and by zooming out in only 30 minute lecture, you get to see these really large themes about the importance of geography, the importance of resources, uh, and the movement of those resources from geography to geography, and then how people have organized themselves throughout time. And you come to realize that we're really in this age of cities now. You see how we've built our cities around cars instead of around people. And to me, this is really unfortunate um, because we have all these roads and parking lots for cars that are used only 4% of the time, and they're parked 96% of the time. The average cost of owning a vehicle in the United States is $9,000 per vehicle per year. 
There is no greater expense for the American household except for the house. And we only use this thing 4% of the time. That to me is a failing transportation hotel. 4% occupancy and really high rent. I started thinking, what could we do to make car ownership completely optional? You didn't grow up in a city. Uh, you grew up in a suburb of New York City, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. What did your parents do? My mom was literally a bean counter. She works for a coffee company and uh, does accounting. What coffee company? It's called Armenia Coffee, a coffee importer. And then my father worked for Dixie Cup doing customer service and marketing. Did you have a sense, uh, you know, as you were growing up in this household that you wanted to, you know, be, have, have an entrepreneurial life, at least in retrospect? In retrospect, I think it makes sense. I like fixing things, solving things, but most of all, I like making people happy. Mm. And so as a kid, my first idea was that I wanted to be a donut maker. My mom would take me to Dunkin' Donuts and I'd get a maple frosted donut many mornings when she'd get her coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, and I saw how happy it made myself and others to get that donut, so I thought I'd be a donut maker. And then I loved magic, so I went to magic camp. And uh, those, are, those were my early interests mm -hmm. uh, before realizing I loved uh, hospitality as a way of delighting people. When you say you want to make people happy, it's such a nice Hallmark card thing to say, but it, it, it's so earnest. My goodness. Uh, that's really nice. What are some other examples of, of you know, the happiness that you've created in, in people's lives before Lyft, would you say? Well, I think I, I get a lot of joy from close friendships, from being close to my family. Uh, my, my parents always made uh, the family very important. My uh, my dad's father was uh, an orphan. My mom's parents were separate. I think so. The, these these factors led to them really wanting to to create a close family, and then I just get a lot of personal satisfaction mm -hmm. around uh, being around people, which I think most humans do. Incidentally, you mentioned your family, and you have current family as well. Your wife, uh, what is her name? Christina. You met her uh, in Spain. Correct. How? I asked her for directions. I was studying abroad in Sevilla, in mm -hmm. uh, southern Spain, and I said, ¿Cómo se va al amor de Dios? Which the street's name was the love of God. She said, actually, I'm walking that way. And we started talking, and then actually two years later, uh, began dating. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is John Zimmer, co-founder of Lyft, an app that connects drivers with passengers who need rides. So you carried this germ of an idea for transportation innovation with you after you left Cornell when you went to work at Lehman Brothers. Was that your first job out of college in the real estate group? You got it. How much was this desire or this yearning to start a company present while you were an analyst, basically. It was very present. So I actually told one of my best friends, Jeff, that if I don't leave in two years, you know, smack me because I, I want to learn uh, what it's like to be at a large company. I want to really become proficient at finance, but that's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. So about a year into it, uh, or even a few months into it, I started a group within Lehman uh, to to have conversations around getting folks interested in investing in sustainable or green real estate. And then a year into it, I met Logan and started working on Zimride. So mm -hmm. actually, Logan and I started working together 
halfway through the two years I was at Lehman. And at what point did you say, you know what, I'm going to pursue Zimride full time? Was it the situation of Lehman, you know, you left in 2008 when things seemed precarious? Or was it just the drive to actually just jump onto this forward thinking company? I was going to leave after the two years. Um, I didn't realize that three months after I left, the company would be bankrupt. We got excited enough about how we were approaching solving this problem uh, that I, I felt like it was time to move. And why did you think San Francisco was the better place versus his coming to New York? So one of our investors, Sean, early on said, if you guys are really serious about this, uh, you'll come out to the Bay Area. How long after you arrived in San Francisco and were operating Zimride where you felt like, mm, you know what, I'm we're itching to pivot the idea away from college-focused campuses to a more general Uber-like model? We've always been solving the same problem. We've always been trying to make car ownership optional, trying to make our cities designed around people instead of cars. And so Zimride had many iterations. We, we started doing carpooling for companies as well as universities. And then five years into it, actually probably four, about four years into it, we started doing these exercises where we would have ourselves and a few team members say, if we were starting over, what would we have created? And yet Uber existed at the time, but they were only doing black cars and taxis. And we said, that's interesting, you know, maybe for 1% of the population um, who are using these black car services. But what about all these cars that aren't being used? And the big challenge was, if we're going to create a new form of transportation using people's personal vehicles, mm-hmm. you have to overcome this concept that you know, your parents told you, your mother told you, never ride with strangers. Mm-hmm. So we started with criminal background checks, driving record checks, a million dollars of insurance mm-hmm. that went above and beyond many of uh, the standards that were required of, of taxis and limos. And then it was just an experiment coming out of Zimride, as we were going to call it Zimride Instant. Uh, luckily, we didn't call it that because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I think Lyft is a, a better name. This idea for reinvention internally uh, and always kind of shifting is what one does in life, even uh, informally. Was it somebody who kind of gave you that advice to do so, or you just kind of instinctively had that inclination? I may have heard it as an idea from from someone, but it's become a super helpful exercise. You can't do it every day. That can be quite disruptive. But, you know, people do it every year uh, in the new year. They ask themselves, if I was going to do something better or different this year, what would it be? And so I think in that, you know, whether it's every year or every two years, I think that's a really healthy exercise for both uh, you know, an individual as well as a company. Enterprise bought Zimride, uh, and when they bought Zimride, they bought like the customers of Zimride. Yeah, so they bought the um, the contracts and the technology. I think for them, the the value has been that they're they're building out their university business mm. to have cars on campus for students, and this was complimentary. So, uh, so you were making this shift uh, towards a more a peer-to-peer general model away from the college demographic or the college service at a time that smartphones were becoming more ubiquitous. So what else in the environment was sort of the wind at your back? Smartphones, having operating systems like iOS and Android Mm. so that developers could build off of that. Uh, And then the ability to create 
identity and trust online. And while on paper you and Uber seem similar, uh, culturally the community feel of Lyft is emblematic of, of Lyft. Can you talk to me about kind of the culture behind Lyft that you wanted to create from inception? Sure. So from the from day one, the the tagline of Lyft used to be your friend with a car. And so that ethos has been imbued throughout the experience. Right? So for us, with my background in hospitality, I always think about how do we make sure we take incredible care of the driver community so mm-hmm. that the driver community takes incredible care of the passenger community. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's simple and straightforward and obvious. And I think that's really helped us create a better experience for passengers. Can you talk to me about just anecdotally uh, some of the people who drive Lyft cars? Yeah, a really diverse uh, driver community. So people that are doing it uh, full time and enjoy the flexibility, uh, which allows them to maybe follow another passion. Mm -hmm. There's a a singer uh, and rap artist, Sir the Baptist from Chicago, who was a Lyft driver. And what Lyft allowed for him to do was, you know, he could make his own schedule for recording. And actually, he said he was inspired by a lot of the rides he had by meeting a bunch of diverse uh, folks. He was getting new ideas that he wasn't going to have otherwise. So you have the kind of artist in L.A. There's a lot of actors and actresses. You have single parents mm-hmm. who use it uh, because they have they have to be able to turn on and off work mm-hmm. uh, when they need it. And what about stories of people meeting each other through Lyft? Yeah, actually, I was on uh, vacation last holiday season, so in December, and there was a wedding happening in the hotel I was staying at, and I was thinking this would be a fun wedding to crash. And then I found out the next day that uh, the two had met in a lift line. Had they known that you were in the hotel? We we ended up figuring that all out because I was talking to someone who was at the wedding, and they explained the story, and I said, oh, oh wow. I work uh-huh. at Lyft, and then, then we met. And you, you too, are a Lyft driver every New Year's Eve, is that right? That's right. I've done it every year. How often are you telling them that you're the co-founder? If they ask where I work, I typically say Lyft, and then if they say what I do, I, what do you do there, mm-hmm. then I tell them. But I don't, I don't come out with it right away. There's some very sharp elbows, obviously, in this industry. Um, you're dealing with the TLC, the Taxi and Limousine Commission, in every city and jurisdiction that you enter. How much of the company's headspace is just dealing with those regulatory legal hurdles? In the early days, a lot. So in the early days, I was spending the majority of my time on government relations. We received multiple cease and desists after the first couple months mm-hmm. of being in business. And we had to create a new regulatory structure. As I told you, we were governing ourselves with criminal background checks and driving record checks and Mm a million dollars of insurance per Mm -hmm. per driver, Mm -hmm. per incident. But uh, we also understood the need for someone else to validate that we were doing all these things as well Mm -hmm. as to create a structure for others to do the same. Mm -hmm. And so when we got the cease and desist, we asked to go in and talk to them about creating a new category that would fit this new form of transportation. And Mm -hmm. that was not always easy. You know, the first answer was that they weren't going to do it and that they were going to shut us down. And so we had to work through that. And we talk about Uber being your sharp competitor. uh, But in a way, was there some co-opetition? Were you helped by Uber because they were also trying to knock down some of these same hurdles? We should have been more on the same page than maybe we were because we were both interested in expanding the type of, of transportation options that existed, but we had very different approaches to regulators, and so we weren't always on the same page. 
just speaking of, of Uber, uh, yes, Travis Kalanick, you know, just has a, a different personality, uh, I'd say. One example of kind of their sharp elbows is that they would call investors to invest in Uber rather than Lyft when they got wind of the fact that there might be investors investing in Lyft. Was, is that a true story? Yes. What, yeah, we've heard that. Any more color around that? Because of how much capital they had raised, there was a moment where they had 30 times the amount of capital than we did. We also needed to, you know, our goal is to build a business based on the best service. When someone has 30 times the amount of cash as you and is trying to squash you, uh, you you have to go out and uh, make sure you can also raise a good amount of capital. Mm -hmm. But in that process, uh, there was certainly... Uh, forces fighting mm-hmm. against that, you know, calling folks that they they had somehow found out we were visiting, mm-hmm. uh, and and trying to make make deals so that we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't have that opportunity. It made us stronger. It made it made people realize that, you know, there there was a reason why they were worried, uh, you know, that we were coming coming up. That was my impression too. That this was a compliment that they cared enough about you in the first place. Um, another example is that they hailed 6,000 rides on Lyft and then canceled them just to upset Lyft drivers in the hope that Lyft drivers would go towards to Uber. Um, any, any other examples? There's multiple, but we've decided to focus on what we're doing. And, you know, I think over time, that's been best for us. I would imagine um, raising $1 billion in capital, which you did in 2016, the Series F, was different from your first round of capital uh, when you raised $6 million. Can you talk about the earliest days of raising the initial round of capital? That was for Zimride, really. Yeah, I mean, the first amount of capital we got was $30,000 from from Sean, the investor I mentioned before. And then I do remember raising our first million dollars um, from Anne at Floodgate. We were, were saying many of the same things we are saying today about changing the way uh, our cities are built by getting people to share rides. She was just the only one that believed us and saw that vision as plausible. Uh, she's on our board uh, today and uh, has, been, has been very helpful. How many investor meetings did you have in the earliest days uh, with Logan, would you say? Many, many, many meetings, most of which obviously uh, the answer was no, you're crazy. What were some other reasons that they gave aside? You're inexperienced. Mm-hmm. You've never been an entrepreneur before. This doesn't make sense. People aren't going to get in strangers' cars. What was your emotional response to, you know, getting that first million dollars? Oh, it was it was it was very exciting. Logan makes fun of me. I have this weird reaction after fundraising though, which is it's like a strange letdown. I guess I like I like that that chase. And then when they do invest, I'm like, okay, now what's next? I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is John Zimmer, co-founder of Lyft, a transportation company. Uh, and, you know, I say it, it's a it's a company with a peer-to-peer mobile app, but you're trying to do things, you know, I'd say even beyond that. Can you give examples of how you're thinking even just more globally beyond just the, the peer-to-peer model of hailing a, a car? Yeah, I think... You know, one, it starts with that vision of making sure our cities are built around people and not cars. And and so now we're, we're spending a lot of time not only adding new products like Lyft Line, which is a shared ride. We're testing a shuttle service in San Francisco. We really want to give you everything you need 
to say, I don't need to own a car. Or even for senior citizens, you know, helping them get to their doctor appointments without yeah, needing a so car. Yeah, so we're doing a lot of uh, non-emergency medical transportation. Um, there's just a lot of situations where... Uh, having help from someone from the community getting you where you need to go mm-hmm. is much easier than you know driving by yourself. Since you were focused on reinvention and always kind of self-reflection as a company, at what point did you feel like, wow, you know what, this is this is working. Like I'm getting traction with the way things are in this model versus a prior iteration. With Lyft, that happened pretty quickly. So Zimride was five years of really, really difficult trying to get people to carpool and it really not clicking to the degree we wanted it to. With Lyft, we had people pulling for and we had to create a a wait list because we had so much demand, we couldn't keep up with it. But then we had the issue of there was no regulatory framework and regulators were trying to shut us down. But pretty quickly into the Lyft experiment, mm-hmm. uh, we felt that this was very different than Zimrad. We say, oh, you pivoted, but it's not just snapping your fingers. How did you go about doing that just technologically? We had an amazing uh, early few team members uh, that, that were instrumental in that. So Sebastian, Eduardo, there's two team members mm-hmm. that built the app in three weeks. Frank designed it. Harrison came up with the idea lift the name as an intern at the time. Gene and Emily uh, helped lead the community and driver onboarding. So it was a a core group, and I'm probably forgetting many people, uh, that in the early days, while others were working on Zimride, Mm -hmm. uh, spent their time on the lift experiment. What are some other memories that you have of, you know, those real seminal... I remember doing... uh, Logan and I would do all the driver interviews. We were meeting... Uh, an incredible group of early drivers, many of which we still know and, uh, in and San still Francisco, see. In, yeah, in, in San, San Francisco. Francisco. So we'd meet them. Uh, we would do driver onboarding, talk about hospitality, tell them to be themselves and bring something unique to the ride experience. I remember the, the government relations battles uh, early on. I also remember having a headache for the first month and didn't know what was going on because I was to balance the idea of what are we going to do with the Zimride business when this lift opportunity was taking off. And that that was, you know, our baby that we worked on for five years. And we had to make a tough decision to divert all the focus to this new idea. What else did your days look like? I remember also before we launched, I remember sitting in a car with Nassim uh, and Logan and trying to design the in-car experience. So this idea of that we used to suggest people sit up front, we were, we were saying, how do we solve for the fact that getting into someone's personal vehicle is not normal? Mm-hmm. And so I remember just sitting in a car together, mm-hmm. uh, trying sitting up front, trying sitting in the back, talking to each other, shaking hands, saying hi, fist bumping, mm-hmm. all these different uh, you know, ways of reimagining what that experience could look like. Mm-hmm. The idea of putting a pink mustache to help make people smile and to identify the car as a lift. It was a incredible, fast process in, in both building and launching the app. I think I said three weeks. I meant three months. Uh, why the mustache, by the way? We found this funny website, carstash.com. We decided on Zimride we would do giveaways when we were at conferences, and we thought it was funny we'd give away this car mustache. And then we were trying to solve this idea of how do we identify lift vehicles. Mm -hmm. And we had this giant, it was orange mustache that we had Mm -hmm. at Zimride in the office. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, 
this would be funny. Mm-hmm. It would also create word of mouth marketing where people would see, what is that? I saw two of those today. I saw five of those today. What the hell is going on? And what about, you know, just in terms of like the, the goofiness, like the frog and beaver costumes or what was that? Slightly embarrassing, but the the first purchase we made with investor capital was a frog and beaver costume. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was Zimride. And the idea was we needed to convince college students to, to ride with each other. And when we were standing at a plaza on a college campus, uh, dressed normally, mm-hmm. no one, everyone would avoid you when you're trying to hand out quarter cards. Mm-hmm. We were like, what if you put on a costume, what would happen? And it, cre- it, it completely changed the dynamic. People were coming up to us, taking photos, and then mm-hmm. asking about what, what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So that was just uh, maybe the, the precursor to the mustache. Now, since you're playing in this extraordinarily competitive landscape, your tactics have had to change. Yeah, the scale of what we're working on has obviously changed and broadened. And I would still argue we're in the early days. If you combine what Lyft and Uber are doing today in terms of miles traveled, it's probably about 0.4% of all miles traveled in the United States are on Uh, these services, Mm. 0.4%. 75% of miles in the U.S. happen in cities, happen Mm. in urban environments. 25% happen in rural environments. Our belief is that the majority of miles in the U.S., Mm. within a not crazy timeline, call it 10 10 plus years, will be transportation as a service, which is what Mm. we do at Lyft. And as a corollary to that, in 2016, half of your billion-dollar investment came from GM, and their focus with you is on non-human driving cars, for example. That's one of the things. So yeah, they're they're obviously large investors. Uh, They're doing vehicle access, providing drivers with vehicles. So when a vehicle comes off lease, uh, maybe it's a three-year lease, and then it's a great vehicle that a driver could use on our network. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have multiple... Uh, autonomous vehicle partners um, that that we're working with as well. You know how I asked before, like, when did you know Lyft was working? Uh, what what about from the fundraising perspective in the early days when you became Lyft? Was there that moment where you're like, ah, this is getting a little easier? No. Maybe in the most recent fundraise, it felt a bit easier than in the past. There was a narrative out there that this was winner take all and we weren't in the lead. And so we were fighting against that narrative, which which we've done, and, and people and we're gaining market share, we're growing faster than anyone else. The simple answer is no. Maybe in the last round it was a little bit easier. It's a fallacy to think that there's just room for one player. Yeah, in this market that you know, people talk about network effects and technology and they were applying a generic network effect to us to a point there's a network effect. But once you hit three minute ETAs in a city, uh, it there can be multiple players. This is similar to kind of three bars of coverage with AT&T and Verizon. What's it called? The supply? We call it the supply network effect versus a demand side network effect, which mm-hmm. Facebook would be maybe the best example where the more friends you have connected mm-hmm. on this network, the better and better and better it gets mm-hmm. you know, forever. Mm-hmm. And so that leads towards having one major player. But in on the supply network effect side, mm-hmm. uh, I'd liken it more to kind of the uh, wireless carriers. Just going back to what, it, what does Christine do? Your wife. Christina? Christina. <clears throat> so she, she worked in microfinance, uh, and more recently, uh, we just had a baby. So mm-hmm. she's been taking care of our little baby. And she's been with you this, you know, throughout the trajectory, because you met her while you were in college. Is that right? Absolutely. What does she make of all this? Wh- what has been her informal involvement with the company? She's incredibly helpful at keeping me balanced about what, what's important 
mm-hmm. like our our family. She's both, you know, uh, my biggest fan and and mm-hmm. my biggest critic mm-hmm. um, in a really helpful way mm-hmm. uh, because I know I'm always going to get an honest view. I say, so what wh- do you, what what's do you, an example? What's a good example? Well, I'll show her, you know, something we're working on with uh, a new a new marketing program, whether it's a video, and she'll she'll tell me, you know, unfiltered, you know, what she thinks of it. Um, I'll work through problems with her, say, hey, I think we need to hire someone for this specific role, um, and she's just a great sounding board. Mm-hmm. Uh, she tells me when I don't look good in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you're a boxer, or you like to box. I'm, I'm using boxing as, uh, as a way to, to work out for the last year or two. Why boxing? I was living in the dog patch neighborhood of San Francisco looking for the closest gym to my house, and it was a boxing gym. And so I kind of stumbled onto it, really enjoyed it, and then uh, now have a boxing trainer. And in a weird way, I found it to be a form of meditation where when I'm sparring with the trainer, I can't be in my head. I have to be present. I have to, it's really like very physical, obviously. A lot of us have teachers or are lucky enough to have teachers in our life that, you know, we remember so fondly. And you were talking about how Rob Young, your professor at Cornell, taught that class. Uh, are you in touch with him still? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he actually officiated my wedding. That was Christina's idea. He did a phenomenal job. And it's because of the, the strong impact that he had on your career? On, you know, broader than career, I think, on, on my life, he helped me to think differently. He helped me to have a better perspective on things. Why? He has this beautiful mind and this beautiful way of seeing patterns uh, and themes that are so obvious, yet no one's looking at. What's an example? Well, I think the history of the world in 30 minutes requires that you come up with some really simple themes. And he is one of the most Mm well-read, knowledgeable people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And so he can tie things together Mm -hmm. and he can bring in history in ways that I've never seen before. For the for the wedding, he, he talked about Spanish and American relations as a way, uh, because my wife's Spanish, uh, in a way that was just really beautiful. What, what did he say? Uh, he just talked about how the two countries have always been inextricably connected uh, and, and, and then you know, likened that to the relationship. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My guest has been John Zimmer, co-founder of Lyft. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.